Good morning. Just a quick uh, announcement, and that is, remember, the Thanksgiving service is in two weeks' time, and we have forwarded to you four questions to help us to put into a video clip on the reflection of this building. If you have your own technology, you can film it and forward it to us, to the office. But if you don't have, Oscar is here after service, and he will be in that room. Go in there, and he can uh, do the recording for you. Please help us, because we need a lot more. There are not many people have been sending in the clip, and we need uh, a lot more to put it into a, at least five to five minutes clip, and we need more of that. So see Oscar, if you don't have the technology, if you do have, record it and forward it to us. Let me say a word of prayer, and I bring God's message to you today. Lord, what a joy to come into your house to worship you with other believers, because that is your command. Because we can't run the race on our own, and we acknowledge we need one another to keep us accountable and keep us on the journey that we can finish well and we can finish strong. Bless this morning as we come to your word. Speak to us. Uh, break down any barrier that will prevent us from coming to you. Tear it down that we may become more Christ-like. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are continuing our series on pathways to spiritual formation. Uh, pathway to spiritual formation. And we are going through the Beatitudes. We are going through the Beatitudes. And uh, we are now coming to the second sets of the Beatitudes. We've, we covered the first set, which is more dealing with the inward side of it. And now we are moving to the second sets of the Beatitudes, which is more moving outwards. The inward part of it is we say that spiritual formation begins with recognizing our spiritual poverty. Spiritually, we are bankrupt. We are zero. We cannot be accepted before God. We must come before Him with humility and understand that we are empty. We need Him. And when we come in that attitude, Jesus said, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And then we begin to mourn. This is godly mourn. Uh, mourn over our sins. And when we do that, Jesus said, you will be comforted. And when you come in that true attitude, you become meek. You have tremendous power in you, but you are always under control. You'll be seeing things in the correct manner and perspective. And then last week, we covered that blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. When we hunger and thirst for God, it is promised by Jesus that you will be filled. And now, as we begin to possess these attitudes, it will begin to move outwards. We begin to move outwards. And today, the three Beatitudes is blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. The word blessed, as I've been mentioning many times, it means approver. God is pronouncing to us, you please me. You put a smile on my face. You have my approver. Heavens will applause you when you possess this attitude. When you are merciful, God is pleased. God said, blessed, I approve of this. The heavens applause. You put a smile on my face. When you are merciful, you will be shown mercy. 
I heard from uh, James Dobson, who's the founder of the Focus on Family, once. He says that there was a sign, he said in his sermon, that there was a sign on the main door to the entrance of a convent. And that sign outside the convent says this, absolutely no transpassing. Violators will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. And that is signs of as the Sisters of Mercy. <laughs> Isn't it ironic? The Sisters of Mercy say that there'll be... The Roman world uh, did not admire mercy. A popular Roman philosopher, in fact, called mercy the disease of the soul. It was a supreme sign of weakness. The Romans glorified courage, strict justice, firm discipline, and above all, absolute power. They looked down on mercy because mercy to them was weakness. And weakness was despised above all other human limitations. But when Jesus came into the scene, he began to change all of that. He taught that practice mercy and he commanded his followers to show mercy. But when mercy was practiced by Jesus and his followers, it was a revelation of power, not weakness. Instead of being a sickness of the soul, mercy became the very health of the Christian experience. And so this morning, I want to explore on these simple Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I want to begin by asking this question, what is mercy? And then I'll give you another question, what mercy is, the two characteristics. So four points, two, two. What is mercy? I want to use scripture to contrast what Jesus said about mercy. Jesus used mercy to contrast with something else. That means the opposite of mercy is this. So the first one is Jesus contrasted mercy to sacrifice. And that is in Matthew chapter 9. And we can have a clearer picture of what mercy, what is mercy from the way he uses mercy to contrast it to the word sacrifice. Let me read the text to you first. Jesus was spending time dining with Matthew, the text collectors, and other, believe, other text collectors. And it says that while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many text collectors and sinners came and they ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with text collectors? And sinners. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Jesus is quoting from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. He said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but I have come to call the sinners. He said, I desire mercy, not 
sacrifice. He contrasted mercy with sacrifice. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, the prophets was, God was accusing the people that you, your love for me is like morning dew. It comes and after a little while, it disappears when the sun comes out. Your love for me is like that. He said, I desire not your sacrifice. I desire mercy from you. I don't want all the things that you bring to me, your sacrifice. I desire something that's rooted in you. There is some fruits that's bearing in your life that you are merciful to people rather than offering all these sacrifices to me. God said, I don't want that. Remember in another, another parable, Jesus actually says that when you come and offer offering to me on the altar and you know that you have offended someone, what did Jesus say? Leave the sacrifice behind, go and get right, and then you come back and offer this sacrifice to me. Jesus said, I desire mercy and not your sacrifice. So mercy is being contrasted with sacrifice. I desire mercy rather than sacrifices. I desire a forgiving spirit more than legal demands or your religious ritual, religious rites that you perform. And the point is that God wants His people to be alive in their hearts. He wants them to have feelings of affections towards Him and mercy towards each other. He does not want a people who do their religious duties in a merely formal way. And that's why Jesus said, I desire mercy, not your sacrifice. Here Jesus came to solve one of the humanity's greatest problems. Because Christian, we believe that you're born with sin in your life. Sin is not a learned kind of Thing. Sin is born in you. Whether you like it or not, biblical position is when you're born into this world, sin is inherited in you, in us. And therefore, we need a Savior to redeem that. We can't learn our way out of the sinfulness. We need a Savior to come and redeem us. And Jesus is dealing with that issue, dealing with this problem, and here the Pharisee comes along and more concerned about this kind of external ritual. Why are you hanging out with these people? But all the Pharisees saw was a ceremonial problem and becoming contaminated by eating with sinners. He's just too concerned about this kind of small, minute, trivial stuff. Their lives seem to be mechanical implementation of rules. Something huge was at stake here but they could not see it or feel it. They were enslaved to the trivial issues of ceremonial cleanness when eternal sickness was about to be healed. And Jesus said, hey, hey, I desire mercy, not your sacrifice. So the opposite of mercy is bondage to religious trivia. And Jesus said, I don't want that. I want mercy. And second thing I want to bring across to you before I move to the characteristics of it is that mercy is also contrasted to straining out nets. And that is in Matthew chapter 23, the whole chapter about Jesus confronting the Pharisee and uses very strong language that, Woe to you, you whitewashed tomb. And so in that passage in chapter 23, Jesus used say mercy, use mercy to contrast it to straining out nets. Strain at a net 
and swallow a camel is basically to say you fast about three trifles while ignoring more serious matters. You bother about those things that is not, no issues. You bother about those minute things that is no issue, no concern at all. Let me read to you what Jesus said, and then you get a clearer picture. Jesus said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. Teachers of the law. You're supposed to know the law. You're supposed to be teaching the law. Jesus said, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You hypocrites. Hypocrites mean actor. You give a tenth of your spices. You give a tenth of your mint, dill, and cumin. You tithe all this. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law, which is what? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. And Jesus went on to say, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. So here, he said, you have neglected the more important things, the more important matters of the law. What is the opposite of mercy in these thinking words of the law? The opposite of mercy is the straining out nets. You blind guides, you strain out a net, but swallow a camel. The opposite of mercy is the straining out nets. The opposite of mercy is when your religious impulses are exhausted after you have decided whether to tithe your gross income or your net income. You bother about the minute things. The lesson we learn from the words of Jesus when he says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and when he says you strain out a net and swallow a camel, is that a great obstacle and enemy to mercy is the preoccupation with the trifles in life, with the triviality of life. The bondage to triviality is the curse of the unmerciful. So blessed are the merciful. And therefore, if you want to be blessed, you must make war against the bondage of religious and secular trifles and devote your life to the weightier matters of the law, which is justice, mercy, faith. Mercy is one of the weightiest matter in all of life. And so mercy is just this, that, that we prefer to get all these religious issues right. And we bother about those things rather than the real impact of your life in showing mercy, showing love, and just concentrate on the external things of getting that right. And, and we're all guilty of that, even as a pastor in the church. Sometimes we kind of caught up with those small things that is no issue at all. And we ram on it to get it done. We ram on it to prove our views when the deeper issue, the weightier issues of love, mercy, compassion, all this are being left on the sidelines. Now that I've told you what is mercy, I want to tell you what mercy is. Two points. Mercy is compassion in action. I have two points and I have two parables that I want to show you and to bring across this point of the meaning of mercy. Mercy is compassion in action. Mercy is compassion 
but it is not simply feeling compassion, but showing compassion. Not only sympathizing, but giving a helping hand. Mercy exists when something is done to elevate distress, not just feeling compassionate, but it has to follow through with something to elevate some form of distress. Mercy is giving food to the hungry, comfort to the bereaved, love to the rejected, forgiveness to the offender, companionship to the lonely. It is therefore one of the loveliest and the noblest of all virtues. And the parable that brings across this is, you have to get this right. Which parable? Compassion in action. Good Samaritan. It's obvious that good, the parable of the Good Samaritan clearly gives us this point that mercy is compassion in action. When he told the parable of the Good Samaritan, he basically, the, the guy came to Jesus and said, you know, what must I do? What must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what does the law say? How do you read it? Well, he answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your strength, and all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then Jesus said, what? Do this, and you will live. And then he wanted to justify himself. He asked a question. And because of that question, Jesus bring in this story of the parable of the Good Samaritan. He said, who is my neighbor? You asked me to love my neighbor, but who is my neighbor? Who? And then Jesus went on to say this parable. He said, a man was walking down. I know you're familiar with this story, but I just want to not, as a pastor, sometimes we commit what we call the sin of assumption. Assuming that everybody knows the parable, uh, without recognizing that there are some people in our midst actually don't know this parable because church comprises of many people. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away leaving him half dead. A priest, a pastor, happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and they saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an ink and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, that's two days' wages, two days. A denarii is a normal labor job wage a day. Two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. 
if you really unpack this parable, which I have no time to go into detail, but very quickly, there are four dimensions of mercy in this parable. Firstly, the man sees the distress. He sees the distress. He said in verse 33, here, the Samaritan came where the man was, and when he saw him, so first dimension of compassion is it sees distress. You recognize there's a distress. And then secondly, it responds internally with a heart of compassion. He said when he saw him, he took pity on him. He has this well up compassion on this man who was robbed and who was broken. So it, it responds internally with a heart of compassion or pity towards a person in distress. He had compassion. Thirdly, it responds externally with a practical help, practical effort to relieve the re distress. So he didn't just feel compassion. Maybe I have no doubt that the priest and the Levite has compassion, maybe. They saw the distress. They may have compassion, but I have preaching assignment to attend to. And therefore, I am in a hurry. And therefore, I, I'm, I believe, give them the benefit of doubt. Maybe they do have compassion. But here it is not enough. Mercy is compassion in action. It responds not just internally, but it responds externally with a practical effort to relieve the distress. He says here that he actually went to him, he bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, and then he set him on his own donkey and brought him to an ink and he took care of him. And lastly, I think the fourth dimension to mercy is that it happens even when the person in distress is by religion and race and enemy. Can I repeat that again? The fourth dimension of mercy is that it happens even when the person in distress is by religion and by race and enemy, which is Samaritan. This Samaritan helped the Jew. So an eye for distress, a heart of pity, an effort to help in spite of enmity. And that is mercy. That is mercy. An eye for distress, a heart of pity, not just only a heart that doesn't stop there, maybe the priest and Levi stop there, but an effort to help in spite of enmity. And in fact, the, last, the fourth point doesn't, apply to the, doesn't really apply to the priest or the Levi because they are the same, the Jew anyway. But it has to come from a Samaritan to go down the pathway. Com so mercy is compassion in action. Mother Teresa uh, once said this. Oh, let me try to look for this. I just lost the... He says this. He said, do something for someone else. Something that goes beyond the realm of a gift into the category of a sacrifice for the sick, for the unwanted, for the crippled, for the heartbroken, aged or alone. Let's move from the category of just a realm of a gift into another level 
of sacrifice. Because mercy comes with the sacrifice on your part. So the first point that I want to give to you on what mercy is, is, is that it is compassion in action. Not just, don't just stop there, compassion. Compassion in action. The full blown of the full meaning of mercy is compassion in action. Secondly, or lastly, is mercy is being forgiving. And which parable is from? Parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew chapter 18. The parable of the unmerciful servant bring to us this clear meaning of what mercy is. It's being forgiving. As uh, Jeff briefly mentioned just now, forgiveness is a truly divine and amazing act. It is not something to be taken lightly and given without thought, but something which should be deeply considered and given from the deepest recesses of one's heart. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, South African uh, bishop, during the apartheid time, he said, without forgiveness, without memory, uh, there can be no healing. And without forgiveness, there can be no future. These words carry more wisdom than we may ever know. I mean, to forgive isn't necessarily to forget. We can't forget it unless you suffer from dementia. To forget meaning to say that you no longer allow the thing to hold on to you. To forgive isn't necessarily to forget. Sometimes remembrance can prevent the same atrocity from occurring again. However, lack of forgiveness only hurts and not helps all those involved. And in the parable of the unmerciful servant, Jesus equates mercy with forgiveness. Again, most of us are familiar with the story. A man who owes a million or ten hundred millions of dollars is forgiven his debt by the king when he cannot pay it back. And he begs the king to forgive the debt. And the king shows mercy and forgives his $100 million debt. But when this same man meets up with another man who owes him $100, and the debtor cannot pay the debt, the man who was forgiven $100 million has the man owes him $100 to be thrown in jail for non-payment. And when the king heard about this, he says this. And then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? Just as I had 
on you. Now, in the biblical story in Matthew chapter 18, it says that the servant owes the master 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. One talent is equivalent to 6,000 denarii, which is 6,000 days of a labor work. Well, that's one talent. So one talent equals 6,000 denarii. 110,000 ta- sorry, 10,000 talents, which the man owed the king, is equivalent to 60 million denarii. And so, if a denarii is a normal day's wage, someone need to work, I calculated this, someone need to work for 164,383 years to pay back 10,000 talents to his master. So servant A owes 60 million denarii to the king and was forgiven. Servant B owes servant A only 100 denarii, which is 100 days of work, compared to 164,383 years of wage. And servant B has the audacity to throw, no, servant A has the audacity to throw servant B into jail and ask them, him to pay up the 100 denarii. Could someone actually be forgiven a debt of millions and be unable to forgive a debt of hundreds? Could a person be set free and then imprison another? I don't think you and I need to be a theologian to answer the questions. Every morning I wake up, I look into the mirror and I ask myself that question. That I, that I ask for mercy on Sunday and I demand justice on Monday. And that is what Jesus was trying to bring across this parable of the unmerciful servant. Jesus says that those who live by God's forgiveness must imitate. A person whose only hope is that God will not hold his faults against him, you automatically forfeit his rights to hold others' faults against them. Resentment is when you allow your hurt to become hate. Resentment is when you allow what is eating you to eat you up. Resentment is when you poke, you stoke, you feed, and you fan the fire, stirring the flames and relieving the pain over and over and over and over again. And resentment is the deliberate decision to burst the offense until it becomes a grudge. And resentment is the cocaine of emotions. It causes our blood to pump and our energy level to rise. But, let me warn you, but also like cocaine, it demands increasingly larger and more frequent dosages. There is a dangerous point at which anger ceases to be an emotion anymore and it becomes a driving force. That's why they say anger is only one letter short of danger. A person bent in revenge moves unknowingly 
further and further away from being able to forgive. For to be without the anger is to be without a source of energy. M. Scott Peck wrote a book called The Road Less Traveled. When he wrote the book, he wasn't even a Christian. He was a psychiatrist. He was a Zen Buddhist. And eventually, he became a Christian. The Road Less Traveled. And he said this. He said this in his book. He said, unless we are able to at least move towards the work of forgiving the person, even the person who does not deserve our forgiveness, there will be no mental health. There won't be spiritual health either. Offering forgiveness doesn't always heal the relationship. But offering forgiveness always enables God to heal your heart. Forgiveness doesn't change the past, but it lasts it does enlarge your future. To, or C.S. Lewis said, to be, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. And revenge is the raging fire that consumes the arsonist. Bitterness is the trap that snares the hunter. And mercy is the choice that can set them off free. Like the chains there that has been broken on your PowerPoint. So mercy is not just compassion in action, but mercy, basing on Jesus' parable, is being forgiving. Is being forgiving. As uh, Corey Tembun used to say, isn't it? When you forgive someone, you set a prisoner free and you discover that the prisoner is yourself. And here Jesus says, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. When it comes to obtaining mercy from God, you cannot earn it by being merciful. This is not what Jesus is saying. If it is by earning it, then it forfeits the whole purpose, the whole definition of the word mercy. Mercy is granted by nature. It is not earned. If you could earn it, it would be wages and not mercy. His meaning is not that a person must, must be merciful in order to be saved, but that those who submit to God in salvation will naturally respond with an attitude of mercy towards others, for they will be shown mercy. You know, some people wonder why God showed such remarkable mercy to King David, especially in the terrible ways in which he sinned. I think one reason that God gave him such mercy was because David was notably merciful to King Saul and on several occasions was very kind to a very unworthy Saul. And he almost lived out this beatitude that you'll be shown mercy. Mercy imitates God and mercy disappoints 
the devil. Let me just finish up uh, this morning's sermon with this illustration and I'm done. Three days ago, someone great in the evangelical world died. Anybody know who is that? A big gun by this, a man called Louis Palau. Anyone know, heard of Louis Palau? Louis Palau, he is the Billy Graham of the South America. I had the privilege of listening to him in 1986 when he came to Singapore to conduct a, a in those days we call crusade, you know, a, a worldwide national crusade. Billy Graham came in 1978. Louis Palau used to work with Billy Graham until uh, later on he came out of his own. He set up his agency called Louis Palau. And he died three days ago at the age of 86 years old. After a three-year battle with stage four lung cancer, he became a follower of Jesus at the age of 12. Just two years after his father's untimely death, and he began preaching on street corners at the age of 19 and hosting his radio program at the age of 19, as I said. And for more than 65 years, Louis Palau played an instrument, influential role in Christian mission and worldwide evangelism as a powerful speaker, teacher, and author. His work took him to more than 80 nations and he preached to 1 billion people worldwide in the 65 years in his in ministry. And once he said, I have no regret in pouring out my years from the time I was a boy for the sake of the good news. I have no regret. If I was given a thousand lifetimes, I would dedicate them all to the same calling. And in one of his books, he said this. He told this story, which is the, the, the illustration that I want to bring across. He told this story about, about a mother who once approached Napoleon, seeking a pardon for her son. The emperor replied that a young man had committed a certain offense twice and justice demanded death. But the mother said, please, sir, I don't demand, I don't ask for justice. I'm only pleading for mercy. But your son does not deserve mercy, Napoleon said. And the woman cried and said, sir, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. And then the emperor said, well then, I will have mercy. And he spared the women's son. That's a story told by Louis Palau. And my friend, as I close, I just want to tell you that you have received mercy from God. God is merciful to you. He forgives your 10,000 talents, the 60 million denarii of your sin. And if you have someone owe you 100 denarii, you know what you need to do. You know what you need to do. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your living word, as difficult as it is sometimes to confront truth, but you say truth always set us free. 
And the best medicine in the world is truth. Only when we dare to acknowledge, then good things can come out of it. So long as we deny it, we hide it, we sweep it under the carpet, we don't address it, it will always linger on. It will always eat us up. Help us not just only to know the truth, help us to act on it. Thank you for being a merciful God to us. Lord, we are forever indebted to you. Our sins are great, enormous, and you have torn the veil by dying on the cross for us so that we can come to you in this manner because of Jesus. What is a hundred denarii that have been owed to us when we receive, when we have been cancelled off 60 millions of denarii? Lord, help us to be merciful. Help us not to be concerned about trivial, bringing sacrifice to you, performing our religious duties. Jesus said, no, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And you told us, you show us what mercy is. It is compassion in action. Not just having compassion, but in action. And you reminded us again that mercy is being forgiving. Thank you, Lord. Help us to do just that, as difficult as it is. Help us to be thoughtful. Help us to be serious. And above all else, help us to be obedient to your word. Amen. Please stand as we finish off this morning's service.